welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. So today we're going to be having an interesting conversation about something I haven't really talked about before, which is like procrastination and perfectionism and overwhelm. My guest today is Sam Bennett. Originally from Chicago, Sam Bennett is a writer, speaker, actor, teacher, and creativity productivity specialist and the author of the best-selling book, Get It Done, From Procrastination to Creative Genius in 15 Minutes a Day, which Seth Godin called an instant classic, essential reading for anyone who wants to make a ruckus. Her latest bestseller is Start Right Where You Are, How Little Changes Can Make a Big Difference for the Overwhelmed Procrastinators, frustrated overachievers, and recovering perfectionists. I can definitely benefit from both of those books. And we see hands being raised. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, I can relate. So hands up to everybody listening who can totally relate to this topic. So Sam, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everybody. So I always love to just start with the very beginning because everybody who's on the show identifies as sensitive, empath, intuitive, some variation of that kind of, you know, that magical sauce. And so I always love to talk about like, what was it like for you as a young person? When did you realize that you were maybe not like the average bear? Where does the empath piece come into the equation for you? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, So I am the eldest daughter of an eldest daughter of an only daughter. So I've got all the eldest. (laughs) I didn't have any choice but to be the eldest daughter. And but it also means and I'm the eldest of 13 grandchildren. So I was the first one like nobody knew there was was no other children to compare me to. So I think for a long time, my family didn't really they knew I was weird. (laughs) But I didn't really have anybody to compare me to. They weren't exactly sure. I was, um, I'm very tall as an adult, but I was a tall baby. I was a tall toddler. I was a tall child. And so I was always very, I looked older than I was. I was very verbally precocious. Um, I learned to read very early. Um, That was one of the advantages of having, having my mother's undivided attention is I learned to read very early and I loved reading. I still do. It's my favorite narcotic. It's my favorite thing to do. And it really led me to my career as an actor because I think it's a very short step from, oh, I love this story. I want to share this story. I want to act out this story. I want to be part of this story. I want to live this story. In fact, somebody asked me years ago um, if I remember the first play I ever did. And I said that, yes, I remembered being in kindergarten and doing a production of Stone Soup, you know, that folktale Stone yeah. Soup, where they write with it. Totally. Out of the rock. And my mother happened to be there. And my mother, who remembers nothing, said, Oh, Samantha, she says, you didn't just do a production of Stone Soup. She goes, you made them do it. She said, you produced it. You brought in the script and you brought in the costumes and you made them. I'm like, I was four. Like, how did I even know what a play was? I'm but, just you know, standing. I'm just sitting here with my mouth wide open. 
Like, that's just incredible. You know, we and and really, I've also read and, and completely resonated with the idea that reading is very akin to prayer. When we are reading, we are in a soft, quiet place of receiving. We are putting ourselves in someone else's shoes. We are engaged in an empathic exercise of reading. Yes. And and I was always a very spiritual child. I was a very... Um, I learned to pray through the, thanks to the Laurel Zingles Wilder books. <laughs> That's where I learned my first prayers. And so I, yeah, I was, but I was always very sensitive. The word I heard growing up more than anything else is, oh, she's so sensitive. She's so sensitive. She's why are you so, Samantha, why are you so sensitive? Grow a skin, my God, mm. not, you know? And it took me a long time to realize that for all of this, isn't just for me, for all of us, those things that we got accused of, by our families or by the world when we were little that have the word too in front of it. Yes. You were too sensitive. You were too dreamy. You were too talkative. You were too loud. You wanted too much. You were too emotional. You were too whatever you were, too demanding, too just too much. No, you were just that thing. I wasn't too sensitive. I'm just sensitive. I might have been too sensitive for my mom. I might have been too sensitive for the third grade, but I'm not too sensitive for the planet. Right. I'm just sensitive. And now I have a job where I get to be professionally sensitive. What you are saying is, I'm sure the audience can resonate in all of the podcasts I've done and in so many conversations I've had with so many people who identify as highly sensitive empaths. The being told we're too sensitive just seems to be like, I can literally count on one hand the people I know who didn't hear that message. And it's so damaging. It's so damning. It's so hard because then you're just, at least it seems like for so many of us, then we're just trying to do backflips, trying to not be too sensitive. And it's sort of like, this is just my nature. I don't even know how not to be sensitive. Well, that's the thing of it, right? Because we are inside here, inside of our brains, behind our eyes, inside of our soul, in here, having this experience of the world, right? I am having the Sam Bennett perspective of the world. Everyone else on the planet is A, not having this experience, and B, having this experience where they are on the outside of me looking at me, which is an experience I have never had and can never have, right? You've never walked into a room and seen you from the other side of the room and thought, ooh, who's that? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, who's the tall, emotionally withholding one in the back? Right. We've never flirted with us. We've never been on the receiving end of our own love. We don't, you know, we just don't know. And one of the things I'm thrilled about, there's so many things to be thrilled about in the world these days. And one of them is this this greater understanding of how the mind works and how people work and neurodiversity and all these things. Because when I was growing up as a kid in the 70s, the only word there was was weird. I was a weird kid. Yeah. I knew I was a weird kid. Everybody else knew I was a weird kid. I was weird. Yes. Yes. Right. I was tall. I was precocious. I was verbally precocious. But I was also, because I was so tall and precocious, I'd been put up in school. So I was a year or a year and a half younger than everyone else in my class and a head taller. Oh my goodness. I ironically am the opposite. I am, I was always the one of the the smaller, shorter people. I'm like five foot, five foot and three quarters of an inch (laughs) to this day. And I actually, my mom held me back. So I was a little bit older than all of the kids Mm. because she felt, so I did double, I did nursery school for two years because Mm. I was right. The way that the, I was literally born one week. I was born on Christmas day. So I was one week from new year's and Uh the cutoff point at that point in time was 
January 1st. And so I would have been in the next grade if I had been born one week later. And I was ironically born three weeks early. So I had the exact, I had the opposite experience of you, but I've spoken to a lot of people who were tall and large and what a burden of responsibility is placed on you. People expect you to be more mature. They expect you to be more like, and for you, the fact that you were so precocious, that you were so verbal, that you were reading premature, you know, early. Yes. I can't even imagine because you still have these developmental limits. Absolutely. You're being expected to behave in this way that is like to one, two years ahead of yourself. Yeah. That does not sound easy. And also, again, not having any understanding of it was practically last week. I mean, it was so recently that I just, I like, I just found out that walking into a party for many people in the world, it doesn't feel like walking into spider webs. I was like, what? You don't walk into a party and you're not immediately accosted by like, everybody is everything. All the, And they're like, no, I'm just looking for where not the bar really? is. I'm like, well, I'm looking for the bar too, but just- <laughs> for a different reason. <laughs> I didn't know that some things I knew, you know, and that's very confusing as a kid when you know things that you know, you're not, that you're not supposed to know, or people, you say things, people are like, how do you know that? And you're like, yeah. I don't know. Doesn't everybody know that? Right, right. Well, and it's funny because right now there's kind of this movement in certain places. They're like, everybody's an empath. I'm like, no, 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 that's just not true. Uh, Everybody's capable of having some empathy, um, but not everybody is an empath. And like you just said, I think that while on one level, it's important for us to recognize the similarities that we all share. I also think that living in a culture that denies these kinds of things, there's an incredible amount of power that comes from that self-acknowledgement and that ownership of saying, no, not everybody experiences spider webs when they walk into the room. Not everybody has prophetic dreams. Like not everybody has these weird experiences that really impact them. And I do. And like, there's an incredible amount of power in being able to say, this is my felt and lived experience. It may not be yours, but it's mine and I'm claiming it and I'm owning it. Exactly. And I think one of the one of the advantages I don't have anything on it particularly. I mean, like I said, growing up in Chicago, we did not use the word psychic. No, we might say, you know, I'm I'm extremely intuitive. Well, you were you were a kid. What in the seventies? You were. Yeah, I was born in sixty seven. So okay, so yeah, so I was born in sixty two. So you and I are kind of in the same, you know, technically sixty two. Although really, I'm kind of a sixty three baby. But anyway, so I mean, nobody was using the words like you know, like nobody believed it was hooey. Back then. Right. Yeah. And you, know, you couldn't argue me out of the. I mean, I knew I could talk to plants. I knew I could talk to animals. I knew I could, you know, that the moon and I had a very deep, specific relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew that there was magic everywhere. Um, you know, again, how much of it is, and people, and this was the other thing I did hear this quite a bit, is this old soul thing. Oh, you're oh such yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Which, again, when you're 11, is completely incomprehensible. You're like, like, what does that even mean? As an adult, now that I've met more children, I'm like, oh, I get what you mean. You know, and and you can certainly, we've all done this where you meet babies and you're like, oh, this is not this one's first rodeo. Great. Thanks for coming back. And other ones where you're like, oh, you're new. How delightful. But, you know, call it whatever you want. Call it 
micro expressions, call it reading micro expression, call it extreme pattern recognition, call it intuition, call it, I don't know, you know, whatever you want. I don't care. I'm not, right. I'm not attached. Yeah. And, and it is true. I, like you said, there is sort of a faddishness around like, oh, I'm so empathic. Everyone does have moments of empathy and everyone does have moments, I think, of, of magic or extremely strong intuition or of knowing when they don't know how they know. Um, and whether they've obeyed those instincts or not, like, oh, I think almost everybody's got at least one story like that where they were like, I don't know why I just didn't want to get on that bus. Or, I don't know why I just didn't want to go to the party or I did want to go to the party or I, you know, and that becomes part of our, our narrative and our, and no matter who you are or what you believe or don't believe about the world. And genuinely, I couldn't care less. Um, we all have a sense that there is something bigger than us. Yes. Yes. Hopefully we all have a sense that there is something bigger than us. Well, and I was, I was, I've been married to two atheists, um, <laughs> back to back. They're delightful. I dated atheists, thankfully married a non-atheist, married somebody with more of a faith, more faith, but yeah, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. <laughs> and even so, I mean, even, even my, you know, one of them said, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure that, you know, about this whole God thing or not. I'm like, that's okay. God doesn't care. And neither do right. I. And he said, I thought this was so beautiful. He goes, but I do. He's like, when I think about the world and the universe and the universe is beyond us, he goes, I do sort of feel like there's a, a benevolent hum. I know, right? Mm, what a beautiful description. A benevolent hum. And I'm like, yeah, we can get married. Hum. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I also, I mean, this is a whole other rabbit hole and not necessarily the topic of our of our conversation today. But I also sometimes wonder when somebody identifies as an atheist in particular, if what, because I've had some conversations and what I've heard sometimes is that it's not that they don't believe in the numinous. It's not that they don't believe that there is something greater than themselves. It's that the very rigid constraints of what they believed God was, the guy in the sky with the robes and the white beard sitting on a cloud, does not compute for them. And that for whatever reason, their upbringing was so rigid and dogmatic that being an atheist is more about, I reject this rigidity, not I reject the mysterious unknown that right. is so much greater than ourselves. And I mean, I definitely think there are people who are just sort of like existential nihilistic atheists who are just like, there is nothing. But then I think there are a lot of people who are not necessarily like, I wouldn't necessarily define them as atheists in the sense that I, I think that if you ask them, there is like a benevolent hum. Yeah. So talking about childhood, talking about just your amazing sense of magic. One thing I kept noticing you're saying, and I, I it just keeps point, pointing itself out to me. So I'm kind of thinking, why not pull it out now is I don't care. I am imagining that that must have taken quite a bit of energy to cultivate. Yeah, I think um, there's there's a couple of levels of I don't care. There's the one I think I've mostly been referring to is, look, my knowing of my own truth is so deep. I genuinely, it generally doesn't affect me one way or the other. If you call something one thing or, or another thing, I, I, I just don't, you know, I don't have an opinion <laughs> about it. And and understanding that everybody's relationship with the divine and with magic and with their, is their own. That's yeah. for them. That's not. Yeah. It's not any of my. It's none of my business. Yeah. And since I've never had any like sort of advanced spiritual training or shaman training or any anything like that, 
Um, I get the same flutter I think everybody does when people want to refer to you as an expert, you know, or you think about doing something and you think, well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert. And I'm not. I don't have a degree in any. I dropped out of Northwestern University to take a job at the Second City. Like, I'm, I'm not certified in anything. So I don't have that, that any rigidity of thought around something being one thing or another. What has taken a really long time is, is unhooking my sense of worth from other people's opinion of me. Yes. And understanding that really, as long as I feel like what they're perceiving about me is the truth, then I don't really care whether they like it or not. And in fact, when I got my first, one of my first one-star reviews on Amazon, I was really happy because it made me feel like a real writer. <laughs> and, and but the negative review was like, well, the book is all this like rah, rah, cheerleader, you can do it stuff. Well spotted. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is what this book is. Congratulations. Yeah. It's called Get It Done. Like, yes, that's exactly what that is. And if that's not your vibe, then yeah, you're going to be annoyed by this book for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and as we say, God bless the unsubscribes, you know, go find yeah. your people. Walk yeah. on. Go with God. Don't let the door hit you in the butt on your way out. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for not costing me money right, exactly. <laughs> by, by taking up space on my mailing list. Exactly. Yeah. And this understanding of like, look, you know, people may call me an expert in this or that or the other thing. And I, again, I don't know that I'm in a position to say, but I know what I know. And that's what I, that's what I encourage my people to do. And they're like, when they're getting to the sort of hand wringing of like, well, I don't really know if I'm qualified to teach this or I'm qualified to do this, or if I'm allowed to do that. I'm not really like, look, you know what you know. If I came to dinner at your house, I would not expect you to cook everything under the sun. I would expect you to cook the thing that you'd like to cook, right? The thing that feels good and warm and comfortable to you. So that's, that's expertise. That's, you know, and the other thing I sometimes remind people is that the root word of expert is the same as an experiment and experience. So to be able to say, well, whether or not I'm an expert in this, I can tell you I have some experience with it. I can tell you I've done a lot of experiments with this. And here's what I have found. I'm just resonating or thinking about, you know, I kind of knew that, but I'm just sort of thinking, oh, yeah, expert and experience are coming from the same root. And I love how you are identifying or pulling out that I may not be an expert in this, but I do have experience with this. And I love the way in which I really hear this sense of conviction, the sense of knowing that you have about what you know. I'm also hearing the piece where you said, you know, unhooking your sense of worth from what other people think of you. Mm. I wonder, did you ever go through any period where there was wavering about what you knew, where you did have doubt about your knowledge, or were you just like always just kind of like, no, this is how it is for me. This is what I just know. Gosh, that's so interesting. In my mind, it's sort of like two tracks running simultaneously. On the one hand, I think people who know me and even knew me as a kid would describe me as very confident, as a as a leader, as a teacher, as some, you know, again, some of which just comes from being tall. They just like to put you in charge when you're tall. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. uh, and being very, yeah, very full of conviction. I mean, like I said, I, I produced a play at the age of four. Like I was just like, no, of course we're yeah. doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Do this. Like, of course. Did anybody call you bossy at that point? Was that one of the terms you got? I remember being called, probably, but I don't, I don't really remember being called No, bossy. no. So um, I'm sorry for interrupting you. Yeah. I'm just thinking, I'm really actually struck by the distinction or the 
kind of the authority that being tall gives you because as a very little petite person, if because it sounds like you and I were very similar as children. I was very precocious. I was very facile. And I was also like, I was the kind of kid who would be like, no, we're going to have this happen. Like I would be like, we're going to put on a show. Right. And as somebody who's very petite, like very and smaller, I was frequent, my authority was constant, was frequently questioned. Mm-hmm. And so I experienced more of a, oh, she's just really bossy. And I'm struck by, I never, ever thought about what height, especially I imagine for women, must do in terms of the authority that it gives you in our culture. I mean, I imagine it's no it's no coincidence that Julia Child, who is probably one of the most successful, especially early media successes out there, is like a giantess. Like she is just an amazing, she's an incredible presence. So, yeah, she's one of my, she's absolutely one of my heroes in life. Oh, um, I mine too. Love I her. have a, love funny, I have her. a friend who uh is hugely successful. And like you, she's yeah, she's maybe five one or five two. She wears extremely tall heels. She's very glam. She loves, she loves the bling. She loves to dress up. She loves, you know, to wear cocktail dresses and sparkly things. And she's a real girly girl. Um, but she's got a mind like a fucking still trap. I mean, mm-hmm. she is brilliant. And she was telling me about how like she learned as a woman in business and just as a woman that like she takes a step back from men to create a little bit longer distance so that they're not looking quite so straight down on her, so that the angle is you know, a little closer and how she has to face them sort of shoulders, hips, knees, you know, she sort of faces people kind of square on to sort of try and take up a little more space Yeah, and lowering her voice so that she sounds a little more authoritative. And I'm like, oh, wow. Well, all that's all stuff I never had to think about right? um, because I am naturally tall and naturally broad shouldered and naturally deep voiced. So people just assume that I must know what I'm talking about. The other thing, so like I said, I started out as an actor yeah. Did all the plays in school, went to theater camp. Like I was that kid. And and as a younger actor, especially as a woman in my 20s, I had a real problem getting cast. First of all, I don't know if you know this, but most TV actors are quite short with giant heads. Yeah, so I we- didn't know about the giant heads, but I did know that often people in the film and television industry are very petite. And yeah. The few um, actors I've met in real time, I've been struck by the fact that like, they are little people. It's they really striking. Little. They yeah. are little. And so partly you've just got an on-camera problem. So because it looks like I'm about to eat them for lunch. I mean, <laughs> right. But also there is not really a storytelling archetype in our culture for a young, powerful woman. Right. It is not until a woman reaches menopause in which when she is not otherwise described through her relationships with men. Right. Up until 50, you are somebody's daughter, somebody's wife, somebody's sister, somebody's girlfriend, you know, and here I was, I was always telling my agents, I'm like, send me out for the guy parts, send me out for the doctors and the lawyers and the judges and the crossing guards and the, you know, police academy and, you know, these characters where they've written them as men just because they didn't think about it, but it doesn't have to be a man. Right. And and I had to that that worked sometimes. Um, although the other thing I was thinking about, I was thinking about when, you know, when did you know you had psychic abilities? I will tell you right now, all actors, whether they admit it or not, know 
for certain that there is psychic communication because every, if you've ever seen a live show, particularly an improv show, but even a straight show, there is a massive amount of communication happening between actors on stage and between the audience and actors on stage. That's not so, you know, we're in in the scene having this saying these lines. Well, I don't want to go to summer camp, mother. Oh, but you must, you know. And then there's this whole dialogue of like, oh, we forgot to set the drink over on that side of the table. Can you move it? Yeah, I'll move it. Like, can you believe that asshole in the third row checking his phone? I know people are so rude. Like we are having an, I can't tell you, we've had, I've had whole lifetimes of conversations with people on stage. Mm -hmm. while we are saying lines and doing blocking back and forth to each other. Um, Mm -hmm. And like I said, especially in improvisation, because you have to achieve some level of mind meld in order to create a show out of nothing. Yes, yes. Well, and I've been involved in um, like drumming, not kit drumming, but hand drumming ensembles and and drumming community before. And there is that thing. And even I'm married to a a drummer, kit drummer, Mm -hmm. but musician. And it's just like, there is definitely, anytime you got these group, group creativity or group creative process is definitely connected to something greater than ourselves. So, well, and also this is sort of interesting. So this is, um, I just turned in the manuscript on my next book, which I'm very excited about. Um, And which now has me thinking about my fourth book. Is Um, it okay to share the working title or is it? Sure. Yes. It's called uh, The 15 Minute Method, The Surprisingly Simple Art of Getting It Done. Oh my God. And it's all about how you can get amazing amounts of stuff done in 15 minutes a day. Like mm. you don't have to change your whole life. You can just work 15 minutes a day. Um, and we can talk more about that in a second. Yeah. But one of the things that's really interested me is this designation of highly creative people. Um, we know about highly sensitive people. And there is some overlap between highly yes. sensitive people and highly creative people. Yes. But, and again, it came to me from, you know, I did a lot of, do a lot of research on creativity because it's my topic. And, but every time I would read a book on creativity, I'm reading it going like, yeah, isn't everybody not like this? I think everybody does this. No, Sam, not everybody does this. And so let me back up. So there's been a little collapsement in our culture between the words creative and artistic. Mm-hmm. And those are two different things. Mm-hmm. Everyone is creative. Not yes. everyone is artistic. Yes. Okay. Creativity has to do with problem solving, with innovative problem solving. If you have ever solved a problem differently than anybody else has ever solved the problem, congratulations, you are a creative genius. And we all have those areas, those little zones of creative genius where we're like, I don't know. I've just always been fascinated by it. I've always been naturally good at it. I really love it. If somebody came to me and woke me up at three in the morning and said, hey, 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 we're going to go do this. I would be like, yeah, yeah. Where are my shoes? I'm coming. Yeah. Right. So whatever that is for you and everybody has something where they're like, I don't know why. But the first time I saw the Bolshoi Ballet, I knew that was my thing. The first time I heard about this or saw that or read about this, I knew I had to, you know, it's just your thing. It's the thing that rest, your rest of your family and friends are like, really? You what? You're spending what? You're spending how much money and how much time doing what? You're like, no, no, it's fun for me. I really want to do it. Right. So that's your zone of creative genius. And if you can find a way to make money off of that, totally do it. <laughs> because it's going to be so much easier for you than anything else. Um, highly creative people have multiple zones of creative genius. We're good at a lot of things. And this can sometimes make us look like dilettantes or like, oh, jack of all trades, right? We're not. I mean, some are, but mostly we're just good at a lot of things. And we have a lot of talents and interests. And we're used to being able to pick things up very quickly, which means we don't develop much in the way of patience. Mm-hmm. Tenacity, yes. Patience, not really. I'm like, if I can't be good at this right away, I'm not really that interested. <laughs> it takes a lot of stamina to be willing to be bad at something 
It really does. You become good at it. (laughs) And especially when you have people who are naturally really good at things. I've seen this with so many people where coming into adulthood and coming up against something where they want it, but they're not good at it at first, it's so easy to just say, "Mm -mm, not going to continue. And I personally had that experience when I was learning to become a tattooer. Mm. Tattooing is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire life. And I sucked at it at the beginning. And it was really painful to be so bad at something that I wanted so badly. But I wanted it so badly that I was actually willing to, you know, go through the gauntlet and do the grunt work and suck for a couple of years. But I've witnessed people where like that, not where you're so used to being good. It's almost like you just like struggling. What me struggle? Never. Right. Right. And it's certainly the wake up call that so many people get when they move to LA, you know, they're, they're, they were the prettiest girl in their town. So they're going to move to New York or LA. And then all of a sudden they realize they're in a city where everybody else was also the prettiest girl in their town. Right. And if they want someone who looks exactly like me, but speaks French, they have that girl's number. Yes. So you better, you know, be good at being you. Um, but congratulations for sticking with it on the two tattoo things, because that's how you become an artist. Yeah. Is being willing to subjugate your ego and stick with it and learn your craft and be sucky at it until you're less sucky and then less sucky and then kind of good and then okay, good. And then, oh yeah, no, I know how to do this. That's excellent. And then you continue to stay humble to the process, right? You yes. continue to learn from it. You continue, it continues to educate you. You continue to investigate, what is this work calling me to do? Who is this work calling me to be? Yes, yes, yes. Well, and I love how this piece, we're starting to pull out this thread of creativity is kind of, it's almost like the precursor to artistic ability, but that artistic ability requires mastery. It It requires effort. It requires diligence in a way that creativity does not. Creativity just almost like it it just arises out of us and through us. Whereas artistic work requires diligence. Yes. Yeah. And there's that, you know, the other time we talk sometimes about the mystery (laughs) and creativity is sometimes we get downloads. Yes. Right. Sometimes an idea arrives fully formed. Yes. And it feels like, I'm not even writing this. I'm just transcribing it. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not even painting this. This is being painted through me through somehow. Yes. And I think sometimes people think that when they think of artistic pursuits or creative pursuits, that they think that that's all it is. And it's like, so they think they have to sort of wait to be inspired. And I'm like, no, no, no. It does happen occasionally. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens. And for God's sake, do not refuse the download. Like this has been special delivered to you. Make sure you capture it in some way, you know, and and do what you can with it because it's a gift. It was given to you. And what do we do with gifts? We give them, right? So share it with the world. Charge for it. Don't charge for it. I don't mean that. I mean, it has come through you. Divine intelligence coming through you, expressing as you. You're not going to get more of a thumbs up than that. It always kills me. People are like, well, I got this whole idea, but I'm not sure it's a good idea. Well, there's no such thing as a good idea. Right. There's just ideas. Right, right, right. So you just got to, you know, get it out there, see how people feel about it. Yeah. But uh, but mostly it's about showing up. It is show about up, showing work, up. Show well, up, and, work, show up. And even as you were speaking about, like, we have to be, our muscles need to be, it's like we need to tone the muscles and we need to have the, like, our body needs to know how to do the thing 
in order for the divine download to work. Mm. Like if you are just waiting for that inspiration, then even if you get this amazing idea, if your body does not know how to do the thing and does not know how to create, you're not going to be able to do it effectively or efficiently. And I think that in many ways, it's like that diligence and that showing up and just show up and do the work, show up and do the work, show up and do the work. We show up and do the work day in, day out so that when those moments of inspiration actually do happen, we have the chops to be able to actually facilitate what's coming through us. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, You were asking earlier about you know, a natural level of authority. And I was saying there was sort of two tracks. There was definitely this track of a natural level of authority. There's a lot of things that I've succeeded at just because I didn't know it was supposed to be hard. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I've had that experience. I I used to play, I had a, with ceramics of all Mm -hmm. things, I I would break with rules constantly because I didn't know what the rules were. And my teachers would be marveling like, and it is, it's like that whole thing of sometimes if you don't know how hard it is, (laughs) you can do things that, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I just, totally I, nobody ever told me that it, I didn't know it was supposed to be difficult. So I just did it right. the way that it made sense to me to do it. And then everybody's like, oh my God, you're incredible. I'm like, yeah, right. how lovely. So there's these two tracks of this yeah. sort of confidence and this knowing, and then this absolutely crippling anxiety and depression that I've also lived with my entire life. And there, this leads us to one of my main tenets of my teaching is many years ago, I was still in my 20s. And I was really, I was living with undiagnosed depression. Because again, there was no such thing as childhood depression when I was a child. I was just, I just cried a lot. <laughs> you were just a moody child. I was moody. Yeah. I you cried were too a lot. sensitive and moody. Too sensitive. <laughs> yeah. Too sensitive. And weird. So even in my 20s, I didn't really understand that that's what I was or that's what I had. And again, I didn't know that everybody else didn't have this crushing feeling of there being a big glass wall in between them and everybody else. And mm. this you know, devastatingly low self-esteem. And, but it was really the anxiety that was getting to me at that point. I was, I was, and I realized I was acting as though I was getting graded on everything. Like I had to get an A plus on every parallel parking job, on every meal I cooked, on every audition I gave, on every sock I folded. Like I had to do it right or else. Super fun, right? Super fun. And and I'm sure for the people around me too, a real blast. Um, So... I finally had this thought and I thought, well, okay, if I cannot get rid of this idea that I'm supposed to get an A plus and everything, what if I just try to get a C? C is the grade that you get for showing up and doing the work, right? Not doing the work better than anybody else, not being in the front row with your hand up, just show up, do the work, show up, do the work, show up, do the work. And I was talking about this with my sister. We're still very close. And she was like, okay, Sam, that, yeah, sounds good. Like, Go for it. Yeah, get a C, you know, whatever. And then we went on to talk about what we were actually on the phone to talk about, which is that my father had moved into a new place and we wanted to send him a housewarming gift. And I, because I'm the eldest, said, I'll take care of it. Um, A couple days later, we're on the phone again because we talk almost every day. And my sister goes, oh, did you send something to dad? And I said, you know what? I haven't yet because I want to send him something nice, but it can't be too nice because we're pretty broke. And I was thinking maybe towels, maybe monogrammed, but I think he has those, maybe something for the kitchen, but he has a lot of kitchen stuff. And I know, and my sister goes, Sam, get a C, send a plant. It's like, get a C, send a plant. 1-800-Flowers.com, $37 later, we've sent the man a Diffenbachia. The next day he calls, oh, what wonderful daughters he has. Here's the thing. Here's the moral of the story. 
my desire to find the perfect thing for my father was preventing me from finding anything for my father. Yes, yes. Right? My willingness to take the cheap, obvious option allowed me to do the thing that we really wanted to do was just tell him that we loved him and we hoped he was happy in his new digs. End of story. Right? Yes. So this understanding that you, that first, and the reason this works, because I can hear the apple polishers out there like having, you know, needing a fainting couch. Um, And speaking as a fellow apple polisher, let me just shore this up a little bit for you. One, you may have noticed that your version of a C is kind of everybody else's version of an A to start with, right? And you are a terrible judge of your own work. Yes. You are a terrible judge of your own work. Stop trying to judge your own work. It's not your job and you're bad at it. Get over it, right? So your version of a C, probably everybody else's version of an A. And if it's not, then you'll make it better because that's how you roll, right? Director's cut 2.0. Here's the new version. Here's the, like, it's not that big a deal. So slap up the website and then iterate it into the perfect website. You know, you're not going to know. Try to sell a thing. See if anybody's interested. See if you can sell 10 of them and then move from there. But quit trying to make it perfect inside of your mind first because you don't know you don't have enough information right well in that whole thing of some of the best um online business mentors coaches advisors experts i've seen they're like see if it will fly before you devote all this time and energy into making something happen and trying to make it perfect just see if it will fly and like i see people agonizing over the idea of doing their very first live video like where they're like, oh my God, I'm going to do a Facebook Live. And I'm like, yeah, you're going to do a Facebook Live. And if you get one person watching it, you're going to be lucky. But it's like people place so much expectation on that first expression. And it's like, honey, you're going to have to do hundreds of videos, hundreds of things before you start getting much traction, unless you're really lucky and you just happen to hit the zeitgeist in the perfect way. And you just go viral with this weird thing where, you know, because your cat like photobombed your video and it has nothing to do with you anyway. But it's that that waiting and waiting. I don't know if you, I'm, a, I'm sure you've read Big Magic probably multiple times by Elizabeth Gilbert, mm-hmm. but I love how she talks about um, being a disciplined half-ass. That's really the key because, I mean, obviously perfectionism is brutal. It's a killer. It is a killer. It's a dream killer. It's a life killer. It's killer. And you know where it's especially killer is there's this little special glow of bullshittiness on it because there, it, there's a little moral high ground isn't there oh yeah of like oh but my standards are just so high i couldn't possibly compromise my incredibly high standards to do something that somebody might disapprove of no no i'll rather just stay inside my little tower and never let anybody know it's like I, and i believe me i get the urge you know and i would ha- i often have to have long talks with myself about like sam not everything is a ukrainian easter egg like Enough, 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 enough. Well, in giving the same amount of like, I think that's something I've noticed as an empath. What I realized I had to do was that I was giving the same amount of energy to every single encounter, every single engagement. Mm. And that I really had to learn how to recognize like, 
what was like a two penny engagement versus like a $200 engagement and, Mm. and like recognizing the value, like you don't have to put the same amount of effort into absolutely everything. And that was, that was a big game changer for me was just realizing I don't have to put the same amount of effort into everything. That's so valuable. One, I have to say one of the, the, the first year I was in business full time, I, um, won a marketing award. Again, this is another one. Like apparently I was like a marketing savant. Who knew? I had done this amazing thing that I, again, I didn't know it was hard. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be able to do it. Um, so I had to give, so I, I was a finalist in this big marketing competition, but some of the best marketers in the world and, you know, did my presentation and, uh, and the whole rest of that conference, people kept coming up to me. Oh my gosh, that was so amazing. Oh my gosh, I want to talk to you about this. Oh my gosh, that you said this thing and it was really meaningful to me. And um, I called a a celebrity friend of mine and I was like, I am having the weirdest insight into your life because I'm used to, I'm an actor, right? I'm used to holding the space for a theater full of people, an auditorium full of people, thousands of people on, 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 on video, millions of people. I'm totally, I'm totally content holding that energy. That's not hard for me at all. This one-on-one thing though, where like, they feel like they know me and they want to talk to me and they feel like I'm their best friend and I have no idea who they are. Like, it's freaking me out. And he said, you're just the department store Santa. And I was like, oh, thank you. Right. It's just my job to hold a little space for them, to let them have the experience of saying whatever it is that they want to say to me. I'll say something encouraging back to them. That's all anybody's looking for. All anybody. Right. Because, you know, I mean, if Steven Spielberg's standing over there in the corner and you want to go up to him and tell him how much his work is meant to you, it's not because you think Steven needs to hear the compliment. Right. No. <laughs> it's because you want to have the experience of saying that to him. Right. right and he, right. as a public person, has sort of tacitly agreed to that and said, yes, you can have the experience of thank you very much. That's so meaningful. I'm so glad you've enjoyed the work, whatever they're going to say. Um, but it was, yeah, it's that same thing of like realizing, oh, yeah, no, not everything. Not everyone's your soulmate. Not everyone deserves all of your energy. The other thing I realized too, because this again, this was my first conference that I'd ever been to, is I noticed this thing. You guys all tell me if this has happened to you. Okay, I'm so rarely any place where I get to talk about this stuff. I noticed that I would start having a conversation with like a vendor, somebody behind a table, somebody also who was at the event, whatever. And there'd be a little chit-chat, chit-chat, chit-chat. And then I would say something and they would sort of, their head would kind of go back a little bit. their sort of chin up and forehead back. And it sort of blink quite a bit. And um, I immediately was like, oh, they think I'm a space alien. They hate me. I don't belong here. I should just go. And then I realized, no, that's not quite it. It's more that they're like catching up. They're like up leveling. They're having that like, oh, this is a different kind of conversation than the 37 other conversations I've had today. Oh, this person is not engaging in small talk at all. Oh, okay. I can do that. You know, so they're like climbing up a little bit. So you yeah. just gotta give them, just, so just give them a sec. They may also think you're weird and not like you. That's a separate issue. But like, if you're the person who's seeing things that other people don't see, hearing things that other people don't hear, noticing things that other people don't notice, and you talk about it like, clearly everyone sees this, you got to give everybody else a minute to catch up a little bit. You got to give them a little vocabulary to be able to talk about it. Um, I've been amazed at how often I've been able to s- sort of slide into conversation with totally otherwise perfectly normal metros assuming people to say like oh my god sometimes my dead friends will not leave me alone and how many of those people are like oh my god i know like i should start charging someone so rent they are like not they're still hanging around i'm like i know and like now all of a sudden we're talking about you know mediumship and and soul communication 
without ever saying that, right. you know? Right, right. Because again, I don't care what you call it. Right. Doesn't, doesn't right. matter to me. Well, and I love, I, uh, you have just dropped so many jewels here, you know, get a see, send a plan. Like I, one of the memes, I created a meme a while ago where I just, I, I have this meme that's a picture of this woman in a prom dress and it says perfection and perfectionism is just fear in a prom dress mm. because it's sort of like, it's always about the thing that holds us back, that keeps us from doing the thing. And it's kind of like, if what you were seeking with your dad was just the ability to let him know that he was loved and cared for, it's like perfectionism that talk about, like, it just would have been a complete killer to all of that. It's just amazing. Yeah. Sam, I knew I was going to tell you this and it's, and this time I really mean it. I cannot believe how fast the time has gone by. I could talk with you. I mean, it seems to me that so many, you being a creative person, you being an artistic person, you being somebody, an empath, I can relate to so much of what you were talking about. And I also am finding it's so interesting kind of being kind of like bookends on the, like I'm the short end, short Mm -hmm. bookend, you're the tall bookend. (laughs) And just being like comparing notes and being like, but my experience is different in this way. And this conversation is just so incredibly rich. And we are getting towards the top of the hour with this conversation. And so I want to be sure that I give you a chance to share, you know, like the thing that you're like, you'll kick yourself if you don't talk about it. The latest thing that I am excited about is, and it's funny, I'm hung up a little bit. I'm still half caught on an idea. You said this is the thing about, you know, being shorter, being taller. Mm-hmm. Either way, the truth of the matter is we were born into a world that didn't fit us. Right. Exactly. Right. So we just physically already, one of these things is not like the other, right? We were already not belonging. Yes. Tribal animals. Belonging is a survival for us. We have to belong. We cannot survive alone. Um, Yeah. You and I are both outliers on either side of the bell curve. Right. And so, and, and that's what highly creative people do. That's what you know, we need people who we need some people who will stay right there by the home fire. We need some people who will go way out across the dark, distant mountains. And then there's us who like dance in between the the light and the dark and and tell the stories and make the bridges between the worlds because we already know that this thing that looks like a normal, regular world isn't because it doesn't fit us. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, right? yes. So we we knew that in our bodies, and then we started to know it in our mind and our heart. So um but here's what, and here's what I do know is that everybody has some part of them that they feel like doesn't fit. Everybody has some part of them that they feel like is broken, is weird, is not right, is 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 not lovable, is not correct, that they really should keep hidden because it's really, really weird. And what I want to say is that's, yeah, it might be weird, but weird is is another word for, for magic, right? Yes. The weird yes, sisters, right? Yes. So well, in the way of the weird, um, in ancient Celtic mythology, the weird is this concept of interconnectedness of all things and how, you know, it's kind of like the butterfly effect, mm-hmm. how what is seemingly disconnected, you know, where it's like a butterfly moves its wings or a raven flies mm-hmm. across the sky and then this other thing that's seemingly completely unrelated, cause and effect. You know, that's one of the, there was a book I read many, many, many years ago when I was much younger called The Way of the Weird that mm. explains that the concept of the weird 
as an actual philosophy and way of perceiving the world. Yeah. And for me, it's like, yeah, I, I like, I'm like, yeah, I'm weird. <laughs> That's just what I am. Well, this is, a, this is another, th- this yeah. is another quality of the highly creative person is like, we love gray area. We love nuance. We love subtlety. Yes. We do not like black and white thinking. We do not like orthodoxy. If you tell a highly creative person that it's raining, they're going to stick out their head out the window to check, you know, <laughs> and- if, if- the the MMPI, which is a personality test, when I was mm. in seminary, I had to take it and I flunked it. I did horribly on it because all of the questions were black and white. It was an either or. Everything was like, if this or, you know, this or that. And all the time I'd be like, neither, neither. I hate uh, them. Your answer uh, is like, no, no, no. And my my psychotherapist at the time, she was like, oh, yeah, artists suck at taking this test because they see outside of the box all the time. And that was one of the first times for me where I was just like, like, no, no black and white here. I can't choose. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Ask a highly creative person a question. They're going to say it depends. Yes, exactly. But it also means that sometimes we fail to notice the comfort in orthodoxy. Like for many people, it is very restful to be able to say this is right and that is wrong. And that is the end of the conversation. I'm not going to debate this anymore. I'm not going to question it. I can just go on with my days. And we will ruminate and perseverate forever around something because it depends, right? So all this is to say, one of the things I'm most excited about, so I've got this 15 minute a day thing, right? There's the get it done book, there's the get it done workshop, and then there's the get it done lab, which is a 90 day productivity sprint. And then as a bonus to get it done lab, we started running cohorts about a year and a half ago. Um, We added in this daily practicum. It's a little 15 minutes every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern, We're still on British summertime as we're taping this. So 5 or 6 p.m. UK time, depending. And it's so simple. My little, I love to overcomplicate everything. I will overcomplicate a paper bag. Brain is kind of freaking out. Because all it is, is we turn on the Zoom. The people who are subscribed to the practicum show up. Hi, it's noon. We do, we, I turn on the timer for 15 minutes. Everybody works for 15 minutes. I turn off the timer. We go, okay, great. We're working, everybody. Bye. See you tomorrow. That's it. There's no reading. There's no deliverables. There's no worksheets. There's no audios. There's no nothing. That's it. It's just 15 minutes of work time. People are losing their minds every day. I'm getting, this is incredible. I can't believe how much I'm getting done. Oh my gosh. I just finally cleared out that pile. Oh my gosh. I just got a new client. Oh my gosh. I just reached out to my old friend. Oh my gosh. I just spent 15 minutes in the garden breathing. Oh my gosh. I just practiced guitar. Oh my gosh. I just played harp. Oh my gosh, I just cleared that pile. Oh my, I'm like, this is amazing. Now I have been beating the drum around the magic of 15 minutes for years now. But to actually have something that demonstrates with this level of ease and grace, like how simple this can be. And you spend 15 minutes on all, my only request is 15 minutes a day, every single day on something that matters to you. Mm -hmm. I don't Mm -hmm. care if it matters. It may matter to someone else. It may not. I don't care. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And And so I'm really hearing... I'm really hearing with the 15 minutes, like it's not about 15 minutes of shutting on yourself. No, opposite. It's about 15 minutes of doing what delights you and bringing you and, and you know, that just lights you up. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And here's the thing is that then there's this fabulous spillover effect, right? Because then we get this little bit of smugness, right? Like you say, it lights you up. There's this little bit of light in your eyes. And then you show up and you're calmer you're less reactive, you have a better sense of humor, you're a better listener. Like we love this version of you. 
you take 15 minutes to do your prayer and meditation practice or to paint or to draw, or, and sometimes people do do it to like clean out the spare closet or go through the giant pile of, you know, of filing or whatever, you know, sometimes it is more task oriented, whatever. And some people switch it up every day. It just, it, it's, but that feeling of like, Ooh, Oh, I did that. Oh, I can check that off the list. Oh, i spent, I spent time doing that. Oh, um, it's one of my favorite sounds in the whole world, by the way. Oh, I love that. Cause it always sounds like, Oh, that was easy. Oh, I could do that. Oh, that seems fun, right? Yes, yes, follow the O, follow that little O. Um, And the cumulative effect of doing 15 minutes a day every day for a week or a month or a year or six years or 36 years, right? It's, and you know, if you played guitar every day for 15 minutes, you would become a better guitar player. There's, yes, you know, if you wrote every day for 15 minutes, you can get out about 200, 250 words in 15 minutes. In less than a year, that's a book. So I've got a question for you because I find that, and especially um, post-menopausal and um, post-concussion person, Mm -hmm. sometimes that shifting into that 15, like the phase shift into that 15 minutes, what about like like the Pomodoro effect for me Mm -hmm. has never worked because it takes me a period of time to get into the groove of something. How do you, with this 15-minute approach, for those of us who like don't necessarily just immediately jump in, like we can't always click into gear with certain stuff. And especially for me, like writing is one of the things where I have to be like, I can flip on to record a podcast pretty quickly. I mean, obviously we had a situation <laughs> before we started with a kitten and a dog that was a little <laughs> bit challenging. And as soon, you know, I turn on the recording and I'm able to flip. But what about? What about the things where it's like we really desire it, but we can't necessarily just like flip the switch and be be in it? How do you navigate that within a, the constraint of a 15 minute time chunk? Yeah, I would say it depends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it depends on sort of really what your agenda is, because it may be that you feel like, okay, I really do want to spend more time writing. I know that I need time to sort of get myself into the zone of it. And then I really hate getting out of the zone once I'm in it, because it really is kind of a flow state thing for me. So I'm going to spend my 15 minutes following up on those three emails, clearing that thing off my desk and making sure, you know, that all these other sort of pesky daily things are not on my mind. So then I can spend the next three hours writing. Or Maybe I'm going to say, you know what? Maybe I'm a little tired of having my writing feel so precious. So I am just going to try and knock something out in 15 minutes and do a shitty first draft or just make some notes or doodle or whatever, rough something out and just see where that takes me if I do that every day. What if I don't need to ramp up? What if I can just get a C and do it sort of poorly and half-ass it consistently and see what happens? And it may be like, no, no, I hate that. I hate that. feels like torture to me. I hate that. Great. Now you know. Right, um, right. Well, maybe that there, into- there's complementary skills. Like I'm going to spend my 15 minutes reading something that inspires me. I was just rereading Rilke the other day, 1904. And this man is reading my soul like he's in the room with me. Like, dude, dude, you know, and I read when I read better writers, I become a better writer. So it may be you want to do something complimentary, right? Or it may be, you know, you're already writing professionally. And so you spend the 15 minutes on, you know, building up your connections or writing reviews for other writers or, you know, something in the world that will sort of raise all boats, right? Um, So it's really, it's really up to you. It's really, and it's, and it's fun to play around with. And it's, I always recommend having a list of 15 minute activities because there are some days you're going to wake up and be like, oh, I am a badass. I am reaching out to Oprah's book 
editor and I'm sending her that email today because that's how badass I feel. And other days we're like, I am shy and tired. I don't want to do any. I am going to draw a little picture of a very small person in a very big world. <laughs> so I'm going to be my 15 minutes today. You know, like you want to have things that have a little stretch to them so you can... So you don't have to think of something to do. You can just select something to do. That, I love that. Agonizing and quit waiting for it to be perfect and quit waiting for the perfect time and just dive in. And I love the fact that you're talking about having a list of the 50 of things because, you know, and this kind of ties back into, and and we really are getting to that, that top of the hour place with this, but this really ties back into two procrastination because you know, and and that I think the relationship between perfectionism and procrastination, but it's like if you have just like, you know, like get a cease and plant tasks that are available, I think we're much less likely to procrastinate than if perfectionism is kind of bogging us down with it having to be like, I have to write the most perfect, precious 20, you know, 250 words in this next 15 minutes. Like, how much of that? So I, even though we haven't necessarily been talking specifically about procrastination, we've been talking about procrastination. Yeah. Totally. And that, and that's the other wonderful thing about the 15 minutes is it hopscotches right over the procrastination and it hopscotches right over the perfectionism because how perfect is it going to be? It's 15 minutes for God's sake. And you're doing it again tomorrow. So, you know, again, humble yourself to the process. See what happens. Humble, humble yourself to the process. Sam, this conversation has been so rich, so good. I could absolutely talk with you for hours and hours and hours. I'm sure you and I could be like, I can just imagine standing in standing in a kitchen with you over one thing and me over another and just like laughing for hours because you are such a light and you bring so much, so much mirth. Like Thank there's you. so much mirth. So I always it's, it's love... Nice to meet, it's nice to meet a new old friend, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> to meet an old friend. <laughs> so it really... Um, so I always love to um, ask this question because it feels to me... It's just... It's part of the, the flow of the show. And I... But I also love it. I sincerely believe that podcasts kind of exist outside of time. You know, right. they live forever. This will be heard years and years and years. It's like, you know, it's today is Lionsgate 8-8-2023, right at this very moment. And when somebody, somebody could be listening to this 10 years from now, you know, in December of like 2033. So I really believe it has a way of traveling into the future. But I also believe that that podcasts have this sort of weird way of kind of broadcasting or folding over on time and sending messages back into the past. And so what I love to do is always use this time for you as the guest to broadcast a message back to your younger self, to the part of you who was struggling, who wasn't unhooked from your sense, like your sense of self-worth being connected to other people or whatever. And so what I always love to ask is when and who? needs to hear a message and then what do you need to tell her like what message will you send back mm, um you know it's i'm thinking about last night i watched a documentary on wham you might remember the i immortal, I, immortal I, work. Saw, I saw this documentary on wham the one if, if it was the one on netflix it yeah. is brilliant i will also say the documentary about Sinead o'connor nothing compares oh. it's, it's I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. 
I don't know if I can do it. It's so beautiful. It's heartbreaking, but it's also beautiful. I was lucky because I saw it before she she died. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but then I rewatched it and it was like, oh my God. Anyway, but yes, about Wham. So watching Wham. And one of the things that um, became really clear to me is a lot of the success of the band came from the fact that George Michael was cloth, right? So he was denying his own sexuality. He was denying the truth of himself. And that gave him an unbelievable appetite for love and attention in other forms. Because Mm -hmm. he felt like he could not be loved for the truth of who he was, he... It just, it gave him a huge amount of drive to succeed in this, in this other way. And the success really mattered to him because, and they're very frank, Andrew originally, his his partner was like, nah, I'm good. You know, he wasn't that interested in the fame. He wasn't that interested in like, I had no idea it was only three years that they were together. I know. I know. All that happened in three years. Amazing. All that happened in three years. It was And it was mostly because George had his foot on the gas the entire time. Yeah. Because he was trying to run from the truth of who he was and he needed to fill this hole, right? Yes, yes, So when you ask me to go back to think about my younger self and I see that same thing, I see that young woman who has so much ambition and so much drive and is so desperate to be loved, is so desperate to be approved of, is so desperate to be welcomed into the world in some way. Like in some ways, I almost don't want to take that away from her because it's one of the things that drove me, you know, and that, that kept me going and that had me eating beans and rice for life and putting up with the life of an artist because. What would keep her, maybe she needs a message, not necessarily like a, what if she needs you to just throw her a bone? What was the message that she, that kept her going? I think the, the main thing is you're already much more successful than you know, and you can't put a foot wrong, really. They're not going to kick you out of life. You can't fuck up your life. Mm. You can't fuck up your career. You can't fuck up your relationship. You can just do what you do and put one foot in front of the other. I had no idea when I had 47,000 part-time jobs, everything from delivering flowers to being a barista to producing radio shows to being an executive assistant to doing, you know, whatever I was doing, voices for pinball machines. I mean, really, I had every job. I didn't know that I was preparing myself to run my own business. Yeah. Right? So really... I guess, you know, I have a little bracelet that says trust the process. I guess in some ways, that's what I would say. It's not a competition. It's not a race. You're not winning or losing. Just trust the process. Trust the process. And you're not going to fuck up your life. You're not going to fuck up your life. It's okay. They're not going to kick you out of the world. They're not going to kick you out of the world. Sam, this conversation. Oh, my God. Like, this has just been so delicious. because It's been a real joy for me, too. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, creative, artist, empath. I mean, just ticking all the boxes. It has just been, it, it's just really been a delight. So how do people get in touch with you? I mean, you mentioned that you have the um, practicum. You met, um, obviously you've got some amazing books, which I will include links um, for books in the show notes. And uh, the books are out there everywhere you like to buy books. And the, there's audio versions too. I do the audio myself. So if you like. Wonderful. That's a lot of fun. To yes. Really enjoy the audible versions. And But otherwise, just hop over to therealsambennett.com or you can find me on any of the socials as The Real Sam Bennett. And the real thing to do is to get on my email list, partly because if you are an entrepreneur, you might want to see how I do email because it's a little different and a little magic, maybe. Um, and uh, 
But also that's really how I communicate with the world is through email. Like I try to remember to post things on socials, but you know, the socials go by so fast too. Like if I post it and you don't see it, then it's kind of lost, but get on my email list. And then, and obviously you can unsubscribe anytime. Most people find it to be a very pleasant experience and they stay on my list for years and years and years and years and years. So that's what I would say is come over to the hop on my email list, and then tell me how it's going. Like, tell me what your projects are, where you're getting stuck. Like, you know, we'll write, we'll become pen pals and best friends. It's going to be great. Oh. <laughs> the real Sam Sam, thank you so much for such a delicious conversation. This has just been so good. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.